how have you become more open-minded and what, what experiences caused you to be more open-minded? Problems that you can't solve with what you know is what allows you to be open-minded, right? If you give up, I, I, I can't figure it out, I'm walking away, that disallows you the opportunity to grow your mindset and then open your mind a little bit more. Hi everyone, welcome to the Toronto Tech Podcast. Today I'm joined by Marino Wijay. Marino takes us through his experience inside big tech corporations here in Toronto. He shares where the industry is, what it takes to be part of it, and shares a few tips about making investments. This episode is a little more story and a little bit less about technology. Let's jump in to episode 9 of the Toronto Tech Podcast. So, Marino, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Sergio. Mm-hmm. Appreciate the invite. Mm-hmm. You and I, we met a, a little, a long while ago. We both went to university together. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we went to uh, what they call Ontario Tech University today. Uh, but yeah. back then it was uh, the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. Yeah, UOIT or you owe it. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so we both uh, went through the same program. We did networking and security. But after we graduated, we kind of went off in different directions. That's right, and yeah. You worked at, uh, I think, uh, right out of school, VMware, or Dell, and then you went to VMware after. Yeah, I, had a, I actually had a few different roles. Um, I mean, even before coming out to UOIT, I was actually at the University of Waterloo uh, studying computer engineering. Um, and I thought that that would align to where I wanted to go with my career and uh, to the future. But realistically... The more and more I thought about it, it was not what I wanted to do. Uh, and so I branched off into IT and really started to develop a passion for you know, being able to operate and troubleshoot and even uh, put things together. I think the aspect of breaking things apart and putting things together is what really drove me into that industry. And I stumbled upon the program at UOIT uh, for networking and security. So, it's, so I applied, got in. Um, I already had some credits, so I transferred over those, which gave me a few uh, free semesters. So I used that as an opportunity to try and find another job um, because I had worked in previous IT roles, um, both at Dell and at, uh, at ING. So you were trying to find a job. You were trying to work while you were going to school. Ex- exactly, exactly. So working uh, while in school, just working, just gives me the ability to kind of be self-sufficient and support myself so not have to really depend on anyone. Mm-hmm. Naturally, I found a, a role in IT, which was kind of like a help desk slash systems admin role. Uh, and it was pretty much what we would consider today as a little bit more of a DevOps role. Um, the help desk aspect of it is, you know, you got to operate and troubleshoot and monitor and understand what the hell's going on on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and at the same time, um, you know, help people out when there are problems. And then the sysadmin aspect of it, of it is you're building things, you're putting things together, uh, even though you don't really know how everything works, and you're just kind mm-hmm. of like flying uh, by the wire just to get it all working. So you got into this yeah. through uh, what a lot of people think you enter the industry through, which is help desk. And what was that, what was that like when you, when you made that transition? You know, you, you know what the help desk was, what the work was, and then you made the jump to actually writing code or putting together systems. It's a quite a different role when you really think about it. What was that like? So it's, it's a bit of, um, I mean, in that role that I was in, I was doing pretty much everything. Like, you're pretty much an IT monkey at that point. So you're responsible <laughs> for, yeah, you're, you're responsible for 
you know, laptops all the way to the wireless, to the, to the servers in, in your little closet, plus the networking. Although it's not massive, you basically need to take care of everything and make sure everything operates because the business that is running on top of that needs to operate and function. And so um, I picked up a lot of cool skill sets there and naturally wanted to um, focus more on networking. Networking and a little bit of security. So I was in the right program and I was allowed to do things in the network that you know, most people wouldn't be allowed to just because I knew things that, um, and I learned things that most people didn't learn or know when they, you know, walked in the help desk. So you were allowed to make changes or, or yeah. tweak things in a way yeah. that a normal help desk person would not be given permission to do that. Right. I mean, I was able to um, log into network devices, um, make configuration changes, you know, before uh, I even did that, we'd have to go through a change control, obviously, and have people review and make sure that the appropriate stakeholders aren't affected. And if right. they are, what is the impact? What needs to be done on their end, et cetera? Uh, and so I helped them get to that state where they were now running segments all over the place. And uh, they had a little bit of a cleaner network. But there were other problems, too. Like they were running old cabling throughout the walls and the ceilings. And this was a factory we're talking about as well. Ah. Yeah. I can, I can see how networking would not be their first priority. Yeah, it's, it wasn't. And, and then after that... Uh, I had the opportunity to go back to Dell, and I wasn't really sure what that, in, that entire opportunity entailed because it was going to be different. My customers were no longer going to be the people in-house. My customers were going to be businesses, other businesses. So and you'd I'd, be a consultant for Dell, effectively. Exactly. Uh, and so I would be, as an ambassador of Dell, going out to customer locations and doing implementations, more specifically uh, storage and networking or SAN and networking. So I, I thought about that and I wasn't sure, but I had a lot of encouragement from some uh, former mentors and they said, just go for it. The worst that could happen is you don't like it anymore and you find something else or you go back to your old job. Uh, and, I, and I decided to take the leap. Now, by taking that leap, my eyes were, were opened. There was mm. a world that I was not aware of that existed out there. Uh, and so to be able to step into thousands of customer environments and see how they've set up their, their data centers and how they've connected things is actually very eye-opening. It um, puts a lot of things into perspective and also shows you what you don't know. It's a great way to understand your knowledge gaps. And then you start becoming extremely curious into areas that you never knew existed, especially in the IT industry. So uh, I... Uh, I spent a good amount of my career aligning myself to a very large networking vendor, uh, pursuing some of their top-level certifications. In the networking industry, if you're an internetwork expert or, or if you have a certification around that, like a CCIE or a JNCIE, mm-hmm. you're basically considered, or you were considered, you know, a, an expert in networking. Yeah. The CCIE was yeah. a certificate that was more difficult than the California State Bar. Exactly. I mean, you needed to invest a significant amount of time in that particular exam uh, because there were two components to it. There was a written component where you're literally doing a multiple choice exam and answering theory. And then there's a, the physical application component of it where you're in a lab for eight hours and you're actually yeah. configuring an environment. And so it's, necessarily, it's not necessarily about... Um, being able to know all the different technologies. It's, it's that, plus being able to think outside the box, plus being able to move quickly, and then be intelligent about how you go about that exam. And it, you know what? I, I started thinking about it, and I would never want to go through that process again <laughs> because 
as rewarding as it was for the last little while, um, I don't think it holds any weight anymore. Anyways. Um, so wait, you, you did go through and get your CCIE? Yeah, yeah. No, I do wow. have my CCIE. I didn't know um, that. And that was the last uh, real Cisco certification I did. Um, I then you know, proceeded to do some VMware certifications. Um, I have considered doing a little bit more. I, I'm just kind of holding myself off of doing any of those because I just want to diver- diversify myself right. a little bit more. So, so you, you, you pursued these certifications because you saw them as desirable. As If I get this, I will be able to get a next job or a better job. What was it that pushed you? Well, that was pretty much it. You know, earlier on, I used to think that chasing after certifications will help me get and land good jobs with a good pay. And then I started to even realize that because of the saturation in that market, just in the certification space, mm-hmm. um, there is a bit of a, a devalue in how that certification is now. Meaning, it no longer holds that same value it did five years ago or ten years ago. Right. So now, when you have it, uh, you kind of have to have something additional uh, to kind of set yourself apart. Um, now, I don't go chasing after certifications anymore for the money. Uh, for me, it's more about you know validation. Do I really understand this stuff? Um, and have I put in the effort to really understand what I'm studying for? Because one, the byproduct of doing a certification is you understand the guidelines of that certification and you, you achieve it. Now that's something you can present. But the second byproduct of achieving that certification is all the additional stuff you did around it. How more open your eyes become to see. Right. You're aware of all the stuff that you don't know because you didn't study that exactly. aspect of it. Exactly. You so, also learn, how, like yeah. I've learned how to study from, how to, exactly. how to retain information. Yeah. Well, that's the other important aspect of going mm-hmm. to school. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of people would argue you know, you don't need a degree and you can kind of make it in the industry pretty well. And that's true. I, I, have, um, I have a lot of people that I've interact with, interact, interacted with, mm-hmm. highly intelligible, uh, holding high-level positions, director levels, even VP-level positions that don't have a degree. Uh, and it's not necessarily um, because they, they aren't smart uh, or they, you know, didn't want to go. They just didn't yeah. do it. They just didn't do it. And they found a different path. Um, what I believe is that being able to go through a, a degree or, or a, a diploma just shows that you're still able to learn, right? You're still able to demonstrate that ability to learn and continually learning, um, and you know where to look. That's what going to school is. You're being taught how to look for things, yeah. um, and that's all it is. Yeah, I think what you go through as an undergrad or as a postdoc or any of those is really you know, you get put in a difficult situation. It's oftentimes like being thrown in the deep end. Right. And you, yeah. have to, you have to learn how to schedule yourself, your time, if you're not good at that. And you have to learn how to do research and retain information if you're not already good at that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not, to say that, it's not to say that you can't get those skills some other way, but you have to get those skills if you're going to go through a degree program. So you are learning how to learn. Right, you're yeah, learning how to learn efficiently, anything. right, and that's that's the most important part. Um, going through school and getting a degree, uh, if it's in a different field, uh, with respect to the job that you're working in, and you're doing really well at your job, that doesn't mean that you know you've wasted that degree. You just right. have a high degree of um, aptitude to learn something, and so you've actually taken the ability to do that and applied it to the job that you have today, right? Um, and so that opens up another uh, aspect of learning. If you're able to um, be very teachable, and if you're open to that level of criticism, 
you don't have any limits as to where you can go. It's interesting you bring that up because being able to take constructive criticism and actually apply it instead of hearing it as an attack and getting defensive, that's really a skill. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's something I didn't appreciate in my undergrad, but oftentimes when, when I receive criticism, pretty much always when I receive criticism, it comes from a place of somebody else wants to see me improve what I'm doing. It's not criticism saying you shouldn't be doing what you're doing because you're bad at it. Exactly, yeah. You know, you can do this better. I know you can. I know your skills. I know your ability to learn. Here's how I would like you to improve your skill. And it's made a huge difference to hear people from that perspective. But that's not something I learned until, you know, last year. Yeah. But yeah, there are, uh, there are interesting social skills that you pick up um, when you start off your career. For example, just being able how to interact with people at a professional level uh, is very important whether that be in person, over the phone, or an email. When I, was, when I started off my career, I was extremely green when I used to send out emails, and I wouldn't really think twice about what I would send out. And, uh, you know, I, I have learned from those mistakes. I mean, you get calls from higher-ups saying, you know, why did you send that email? Uh, what's wrong with you? We need to have a conversation with your manager, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but it's more of a learning experience. It's not an opportunity for you to get fired. It's just, okay, I'm green. I'm pretty new. I didn't know. I've learned from it. I'll move on. That's and that's it. it. And the second important part of that is that the person that's you know, kind of seeing this needs to be able to move past that as well, uh, meaning uh, they need to work to improve you. So if that director is calling you out for saying something silly on an email, or in an email thread, or you might have sent it to you know, an inappropriate audience, mm-hmm. right? The opportunity that they can take is that, you know, let's teach them something new. Let's say, hey, maybe this is not how you respond or who you send this to. Let's take a moment to assess. So it's, it's things like that um, that you start learning in your career earlier on, and then you get to apply to other jobs. But it's also the, the very important thing about that social aspect is being able to talk to people, being able to have a conversation with people. And a lot of people, I think, struggle with that concept because... The concept of talking? What do you mean? Co- having conversations, being able to go out, um, even leaving their kind of shell. Like when you, when you go to an office, mm-hmm. how often do you see people that are just kind of to themselves, have their headphones on oh. and doing, doing their work, right? Often. Often, right? You would think that they're, they're looking to not be distracted, but realistically, I believe that they're looking to not have a, uh, an engaging conversation with someone because it just speaks to um, their comfort level. It speaks to um, their level of anxiety, right? And I say this because I used to be like that, right? I'd be very timid and I wouldn't want to say anything to anyone. And I'd kind of keep myself behind my email and phone conversations. So I'd limit my right. in-person interactions. It's a defense. Yeah, it's a defense mechanism. Um, but I, I learned um, by working at Dell, by working at, uh, actually spending a lot of time at Dell, how to develop this, um, this personable skill where you can communicate very well, where you can actually go out and present and stand in front of people and take the heat from people or... You know, when someone is just, you know, just laying it on you and making you feel like shit, you know, how do you handle? Well, you don't respond inappropriately. You just take it. You kind of respond after a few seconds, after taking a breath. Right. 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 Maintain your exp- maintain your composure. Composure. That's the word. That's really it. Uh, yeah. And it's going to take energy. Yes. Yeah. something yeah. I, I didn't learn at first because I know what you mean. That headphones on, that 
I'm doing my work, let me keep my nose down. Yeah. It takes a lot more energy to be open to any conversation that somebody might come up with. Yeah. If, if, if I see you, Marina, walking towards me and you don't usually come talk to me at the office, uh, I have no idea what you're going to say. It might be something very startling or very, like, it's going to take all my energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I might have previously tried to avoid that. Yeah. And now I just accept it's going to take something. And that might look like, if you come to me and say, hey, we have a big prod issue right now. Right. We need to deal with this. This is on fire. You know, I've got to deal with that. And the repercussion might be, I'm not going to work until the 5 o'clock end of the day today. Right. Today I've expended my energy because of what happened. I'm leaving at 3. Right, you right. Know? That it really takes something to make those those calls and to be okay with that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's basically stepping out of your comfort zone to be able to have that ability to communicate with someone else. Uh, and then, it, I, I look at it as being able to tie what you're passionate about to being able to have that conversation. So, you know, having this conversation with you today is because I'm passionate about a lot of different things, uh, and so I'm able to easily talk about it. Uh, I'm not going to spend time talking about sports or the Raptors or the Leafs. <laughs> I'm not a sports yeah. guy. Right? Right. I, I invest my time in things that I have high interest in. So well, that's what I'm, yeah. I'm here to get at. I want to know yeah. what you're passionate about, and I want to yeah. hear you talk about that. So uh, as you probably figured, I'm very passionate about technology mm-hmm. and you know, where the industry is today, where it was, and where it's headed. Yeah. Uh, I want to give a little bit of context before we get into that. Yeah. So you and I went through the same program, and we learned computer networking and security. Yep. It was a four-year undergrad program. I think you graduated 2012. Yeah, that's right. I was a year later because I took a year off to do work. That's right. And then from graduation, I went off to work at a tiny little company where me and another dude designed, built, tested, and deployed everything. Yeah. And then three years later, I went to a a slightly bigger company with a tiny team where we designed, built, tested, and deployed everything. So, you know, very full stack, very full ownership, and very small. Yeah. And I... My perception is that you went off in another direction, yeah. where you went to Dell and VMware, these very big companies, and you were a piece on a team of a much bigger thing. Yeah, so the way I look at it is I built, or I, I worked to build the platform where you would build the application that ran on that platform. So I limited my, uh, my knowledge by not getting too involved in the whole programming nature, how to actually build an application um, and so I kind of stopped um, at, like, you could say, layer at some parts of layer 7 of the OSI model because uh, I didn't dive right. deep into how that application was built. Mistake. I understood how programming was. Well, but, it's it's yeah. not. I mean, yeah. the program we went into was networking security. The fact yeah. that I went off and did software was weird. Yeah. I think most people went off and did what you, what you did. And well, yeah. I think it's interesting to me that this education that we got, I feel like we were lucky because they prepared us for doing both of these things quite well. Yeah, it takes a, it takes a particular um, you know, set of skills to be able to recognize what you know and then be able to apply that to the industry, right? So you know, all the programming that you've learned and some of the web development plus some of the systems-related things that you've learned around Linux right. and, and operating system security, that was highly applicable to some of the jobs that you took. A lot of the networking courses that I learned, some of the security courses few of the Linux in cloud it was highly applicable to what I did, right? right? So yeah, the, there was a great blend of being able to kind of learn a lot and you know, take that knowledge and go in various different directions. Um, but personally, I just think that it wasn't enough because it wasn't keeping us mm. in touch with what's going on today and what might be coming in the future. Right. And I think we, what we were learning was targeted to 
kind of what the industry was a few years behind at the time we were getting our education. So it makes sense to me that we got out into the industry. The industry's already been progressing and changing. Right, right. So the way I see it is the industry has been rapidly changing, mainly because of the advancements or, or the rapid advancements in technology. Like if you look at a CPU today, it has increased in capacity, I don't know, tell me, by 100 times its processing power as compared to five years ago? I don't know about 100 times. Well, you think about the, what, what's, what's the latest? Moore's Law? Yeah, if we look at Moore's Law, it's going to yeah. double, what was it, every 18 months? Yeah, so we're, we're basically increasing... That's a fair point. Yeah, capacity. And so what the technology vendors are starting to do is trying to commoditize a lot of these um, technologies. Like, like processing power should just be a commodity. I need processing power, give me the most amount of it and the most efficient amount of it, and I'll run with it. That's what, how applications are being built. It's not a matter of, give me a server, let me just install an OS, or let me just bare metal install the application. That's right. Work like that Which anymore. is, that's what it was when we, when yeah. we learned it way back in school. The concept yeah. of VMs, we didn't even get into it until fourth year, and that course was just added before we graduated. Yeah, you know what, even then, even when we were in school, I had no concept of what a, what a SAN was, it was a storage area network. I had no right. concept of what, well, I had an idea of what virtualization was, but all these other pieces in the data center weren't really expanded upon, and you kind of had to go out and discover it for yourself. Um, but then the shocking thing is that even the technology that I learned while I was at Dell kind of became like just necessary. And when things become just necessary, it doesn't become it becomes another commodity where okay, I just go get that storage array that I need. Doesn't matter what it is; it's going to service my needs regardless. Storage, like storage array networks were very important probably 10, five to 10 years ago, um, mainly because they gave a degree of performance and isolation. So if anything went down in the network that contained your storage that was provided to your compute hosts, right. if that, you oh, know, if, the world was on fire. Yeah, everything was on fire. But if yeah. you isolated that out and compartmentalized it and used a, a concept of fault domains, and then use you know storage concepts like RAID and all this fun stuff. Then you protect your data, right? And that was like hot for a long time, but then right. it just almost made no sense to kind of you know set apart your network. And the main reason we did this was because the network performance, right? right. So your storage network would get crushed if it ran on the same network as your your compute network. So you separate your storage out, and you're okay. Switches and routers are super fast today. So it becomes irrelevant now. And then you have protocols like NFS and ZFS that kind of just make this abstracted. So it almost becomes unnecessary to create your own storage array. And then you have platforms like hyper-converged infrastructure, which makes it even uh, more like a situation where, who cares? You know, I've got a hyper-converged infrastructure. And where this is all leading towards is how we go about consuming and deploying apps. So consuming apps I, it happens similar to the way it's always been. No, that's that changed. changed. I, that actually has changed. The way we it. consume apps is different than it was yeah, five years ago, because ten years you ago? Can't all, you can't just believe that the only apps that we'll always consume are going to be front-ended. There are always a lot of back-ended apps that need to access other back-ended apps or front-end apps that get accessed by back-end apps because there is a, I believe, a feedback loop in a lot of other applications, right? Mm -hmm. So 
when we go about building applications, you kind of have to think about this whole concept of decoupling and decentralization. You know, microservices might be a term, um, but then there are other ways to achieve that whole idea of it. Um, you know, one hot concept today is containers. You run a right. function on containers, uh, and then you have an orchestration system like Kubernetes, and then maybe you have an additional service on top that manages Kubernetes for you, or not. It doesn't really matter. It really depends on how you run your DevOps shop. But this whole concept allows you to not create dependencies in an application. And then you can also have failures in an application which doesn't impact another part of that application. Right, because if it's microserviced out, you have a failure at one place. Exactly. It's isolated exactly. as much as possible. Um, if you've got a web of, of microservices that all depend on each other in different ways, right. one failure is not going to knock everything offline. Exactly. But if you've got a clear path of A depends on B, depends on C, depends on D, and you've got a failure, it's, at that point it doesn't matter that you microservice it. Well, yeah, that's because you built your application poorly, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> um, Which is, I think that's the next big thing that, that's being learned. Some, some businesses have already gone through that pain and have built really oh, yeah. well-designed, yeah. scalable applications, but by and large, I think... A lot of people are still in an old mindset of how to design applications. It's kind of, it's not designed with failure in mind often. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't matter that you're running on the cloud because what you've built can't handle the failure of cloud. That's right, that's right. It, uh, it almost feels like in the last three years, the dev guys, uh, you know, had their day and they're still having their day. So when, you, when I say that because um, for the longest time, the devs were at the mercy of the infrastructure guys, right? Hmm. Now it's the other way around. The infrastructure guys are at the mercy of the devs because the devs, they just kind of go out and do their thing. They automate everything. Yeah. They use API. And uh, with you know, all these different API gateways, um, accessing you know, physical resources or even application resources, there isn't a thing a developer can't do anymore. That's right. It used to be that a network was set up or yeah. the layout of the land was set up by the the operations guys, the infrastructure guys, right. and then the devs would work on top. Yeah. And now there's now with Kubernetes or Amazon services, Azure services, you can write scripts that put together a network exactly the way you want. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I want to bring up something interesting. Um, so I spent some time in the networking and security business unit at VMware, and uh, I was a, a systems engineer selling uh, and proving the, the concept of networking and security in the virtualization space. The technology was called NSX. It still is called NSX, but it's grown since. Um, the technology was originally focused on the virtual machine workload, but there was an opportunity to address the physical market, the container market, the um, cloud instance market, as well as the services market. And what I mean by services is microservices. So. That whole technology of software-defined um, networking really meant software-defined application platform. And I say right. that because we built, or NSX was built to essentially allow an application to kind of make its own path. Um, and why I say it like that is because there are, are vendors out there that will say that they do software-defined networking, but then they tie themselves to particular technologies or specific hardware that need, they need right. to run the there worst are, way to do it because then yeah. you're, you're locked into this very expensive hardware. Exactly. Now there are other vendors that do it like NSX does, completely in software and that's the, that's the right approach. Um, and the reason why I say it's the right approach is because I call it just-in-time networking, right? Hmm. So 
if everything is running in software, that means everything is running in code, which means everything can be wrapped up in a file that you can walk away with and do anything you want to. Right, your entire right. application, the front yeah. end, the back end, the load balance, it's a database. defined as code. That's all it is. And that brings up even another interesting topic, but that's for another day. But anyways, I, I bring that up because I started to realize that it all became about the application, and it all was about the devs. You know, they've been kicking and screaming for the longest time, but they found a way to now bypass everyone, mm -hmm. right? So they don't need us anymore. So how do we make ourselves relevant? How do the infrastructure guys make themselves relevant? By aligning themselves to dev, to DevOps, to saying we can meet the needs of your business. This is not just VMware. This is even Red Hat. This is IBM. This is AWS. This is Google. This is Azure. They just have unique different approaches. That's right. it. So, you know, with containers and service, uh, sorry, and microservices, then the element of service mesh comes up, and that helps us with even further decoupling our applications from what we build them on top of. So, I, used, I, I still kind of am a disaster recovery specialist, but we're talking about, you know, infrastructure disaster recovery. What happens when your, your physical resources go down and they have to fail over to another site? And traditionally, you know, you fail over VMs, but there becomes another problem in addressing the networking and security. So there are technologies that address that pretty well. But then it wasn't just about the VMs, it was about everything else. So for, for people that are already running their application stacks, there are ways to approach disaster recovery. But for new, for when you're just starting to build new applications, um, the concept of service mesh and containers and microservices and running in the cloud or cloud native gives you another level of flexibility. It gives you the ability to kind of create a, a different level of DR where your application is now not tied to a particular environment. Right. If you design it in yeah. that sort of cloud native way, yep. you, can you can pick it up. Like, for yep. example, if you design it to run on OpenStack, yep. you can go anywhere that there's a cloud provider for OpenStack. Exactly. Well, that, that's the case with VMware as well, I mean, or vSphere. Right. So if there's a vSphere cloud that lives anywhere, you can kind of deploy it that way. However, to kind of further abstract it, whether you're running OpenStack or KVM or, or vSphere or whatever the hell else you're running, to provide an additional layer of abstraction is even further important because if any one of those components fail, your application doesn't fail or parts of the mm -hmm. application don't fail because those microservices can be spun up now anywhere. And as long as there's a way to access them over the network, that's it. That's all that matters. That's it. Yeah. Anyways, moving on. What's next? <laughs> Good talk about DR. One of the things I did want to talk about, besides, like, obviously, I want to hear your insights on how do you think uh, we could be better educated and how, where the industry is going. You, you mentioned something interesting to me, which was the relevance of infrastructure has changed. It was much more relevant in the past than it is today. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people who think about the tech industry or the industry that we work in is that, oh, you're in tech, you're in a utopian motherland of jobs and opportunities everywhere which way you look. But you called out something interesting, which is there's a lot of different areas of tech and they're not all equally opportunistic. So what do you do or what is your advice to someone who's, you know, they've, they've gone the infrastructure route, they know a lot about networking, they know a lot about low-level OS stuff that's less and less relevant as time goes on. What, what's like, or how, how much in decline is that industry, and what's, what would you say to people? Where do you go? Well, what I will say is that there's always going to be a need for 
infrastructure guys, regardless. Um, there's going to be less and less of them, though, as we start making these devices dumber and we start mm -hmm. building more and more intelligence into software. Uh, if you kind of look at some of the cloud providers and their model, um, they just deploy hardware. A lot of their overall intelligence is in their software. And then that same software will then in turn be the platform for where we go and access the services that we want to consume. So that whole notion of, hey, I need to go spin up a router or deploy a router um, and then you know deploy multiple subnets and then gateways, et cetera, and then connect to the internet, that is starting to go away. Right. And it's starting to go quickly. Um, and now it's, it's, yeah. one, it's one network infrastructure that's flat and on top of it, the software will handle the VLANs and handle... Yeah, yeah, that's what's been going on for a while now. This whole concept of overlay networking, it's, it's been going on. Um, and even overlay security. So my advice, though, is that you, you can't forget the knowledge that you have today. You need to still leverage it. But then how do you leverage it with the future? And so what I see a lot of people doing, and even my, myself, for that matter... Um, I've started to pick up a technology like Python just to learn yeah. a little bit better because there's a lot of flexibility in what you can do with Python um, and at the same time you also want to be able to just ready yourself in different cloud technologies um, and then maybe if you want to specialize in one um, that's not going to be enough though. you kind of have to um, think about branching off into other areas so if you specialize in one area Maybe it's time to leave that, become a generalist, and then specialize right. in another area. So, for, for, for example, myself, I was always a networking guy. Uh, and then I, I started to realize that being a generalist helps give you visibility into a variety of different things, different areas. And so I've, I've started to notice that just automation, for me, working with the API more is what's driving me. You know, being able to just right. kind of drop code and say, yep, here's my, here's my infrastructure, here's what's gonna run your applications, but hey, is this gonna be sufficient? Can your applications modify what I've deployed on the fly? And that's what's important, right? And that's what, what I've started to be highly interested in, but then that's opened up areas for me that I've never even touched, right? So for mm -hmm. example, I've never really used Linux. No? Like no. I mean, always I, a Windows and Mac yeah, person? I've, I've always been a Windows mainly guy. And then only recently, only about two years ago, started using uh, Mac for, for work. Um, but the thing is, though, I've touched Linux here and there. I've used it when I needed to, and that's about it. Uh, I started to realize, though, that there are so many things that I want to do that I can do so much better in Linux. Like, if I want to spin up a mm -hmm. DNS server, it's pretty easy to do in Linux. I mean, it, yeah, it takes a little bit of scripting. But then what you also develop as a byproduct is being able to work with the Linux operating system, you know, making directories, editing files in, in VI or Nano, um, using the sudo command to install uh, particular uh, packages or applications. Right. Um, and those things, I was like always, it was foreign to me. For whatever reason, it never made sense. I always went to, you know, add remove programs in Windows, right? Uh, and then, <laughs> yeah. you know, when I spent a lot of time in networking, that became less and less of a concern for me, and I was just, you know, touching the CLI a lot. It's not right. about the CLI. It's not about logging into a GUI. It's about the API. It's about automation. That's where right. I'm really developing my Right, because at the end of the day, it's getting something useful. And if you can do it faster through the API and through the CLI, yeah. then that's where things are going to trend. 
Exactly. I mean, you pick up these different skill sets just to augment what you already know and what you already have. Uh, but then I wouldn't say stop there, right? There might be something you might be passionate about. And I'm trying to marry what I know in technology to things that I'm passionate about. And I'm just trying to find that alignment. I'm sure that a lot of people that you know, listen to this podcast probably oh my do God. the same. What's Dude, that? your mic's been off. Oh, really? What's oh, going it's on? It's been on mute. What? Oh, shit. Oh, no. Can you hear me now? Oh, my goodness. Oh, it hasn't been recording this entire time. Ah. Uh, we were talking about the trend towards API and backends instead of like UI-driven stuff. You're talking about automation, hooking up to the APIs. It's interesting. Somebody who's been in the industry uh, 10 years, as you have. Maybe more. Your experience with Linux is, is little. Yeah. And I think I certainly had a thought that everybody who's been in the industry a long time has, has spent a lot of time on Linux. And that's not true. No, there's, there's a lot of people out there that haven't really touched Linux and are now starting to get into it because... They've been either database heavy or network heavy or uh, like Windows heavy or something else heavy um, and maybe very light on Linux. And at the same time, the adoption rate of Linux in the enterprise or even in, in SMB hasn't been... It's very slow. It's well, still very little. Well, it was, it was slow and it's starting to really pick up just because of the way applications are being developed today. Um, if you know Linux, then you're going to be very resourceful. Um, in this industry, and it's it's not necessarily knowing Ubuntu or knowing um, how to work with Red Hat or or specifically those. It's just knowing the basics of Linux, and you can kind of figure out the rest later on. Um, you know, along the lines of like programming. I mean, I I'm looking at Python mainly because Python is is something that I've seen in the past. I can kind of relate to it a little bit more. And it's been easy for me to learn. Um, others can go investigate other languages. Like other people can stick with Java if they want. I used to. I know. I have programmed in Java before. I have programmed in C plus plus and C and C sharp. But I kind of forgot all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. What I remember though is the constructs and how I, how I I know how to use them in programming. That's really it. So what what draws you more towards Python than these other languages? From some from someone who's for, you've got the perspective of yeah. you've spent a little bit of time in each language. Yeah, so Python is now mostly used in a lot of different applications, uh, whether it be you know provisioning infrastructure, whether it be provisioning an application, whether it be working um, with some sort of batch job or whatever it is. It's it's actually very powerful, um, and so what that also means is that there's a lot of people that have used it and now post their examples online. So right. you don't necessarily have to go out and reinvent the wheel. You just have to be able to understand what you want to do, understand how Python works and how to program in it, and then you can go and you know, leverage someone else's code mm -hmm. and then give credit to them. And that's yeah. how I see it, right? And the time to value for Python versus something like C is much exactly. less. It's friendlier to use Python in my perspective. Um, now, there are other languages that, are, that have been around for a very long time that are still very powerful. Um, it's really up to you. I mean, what you're more comfortable learning. If you're new, uh, I would say go Python. Uh, what other languages would you recommend? Uh, I'm definitely biased. I've worked in Python the last, all of my adult career, I think. Yeah. Um, heavily biased towards it because uh, the time that it takes me to write something useful yeah. is much shorter than other languages that I've used. 
Yeah. And even as things get bigger and bigger and bigger and I need more performance because my application has, you know, tens of thousands of users now or whatever it is, mm -hmm. I find that the performance is still there. Right. So it's right. not like I have to now pack it up, rewrite everything in C to get the performance. I'm finding that as long as I write my application well and I don't make any obvious design bad decisions, then Python is more than enough performance for everything that I've needed to do. But I'm also not, you know, no one's going to write their, their database driver in, in Python or their that very low-level stuff. You need to depend on that bedrock yeah. of C and Erlang and, and these core languages that are much faster. Yep. But that's, that's a very small percentage of people's jobs. Well, and that's the other thing, too. I was just going to say that, right? There are a limited number of people that specialize in that area. And there are, there are different kind of... Like, uh, situations like this in different parts of the technology industry where there's a small area where there are specialists but then when you start to realize that we can start solving these problems and and moving away from having to have these very compartmentalized specialists then they become less and less of a concern and a problem so things like Erlang or any other language Erlang Erlang <laughs> uh, it's a, the it's the bedrock of that sounds like Elasticsearch uh, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, that sounds like, uh, for whatever reason, it sounds like a telecom uh, technology, uh, like a PBX-related technology. Anyways, <laughs> um, you're not talking about Golang, right? No, I'm not talking about Golang. Okay. Although and Go is another one that's grown in popularity a lot in recent years. Yeah, I mean, basically pick your poison. Um, and what I also started doing is like trying to work with a Raspberry Pi. You know, huh. you install Linux on there. Uh, or even you, you run um, Raspbian. And right, Debian, a Debian-based Linux yeah, for uh, Raspberry Pi. Yeah, exactly. And then you basically can install IPython and Python itself, Python version 3, and then you can, you're good to go. You have this little thing. And if you want to get really cool, you can get a little, uh, little LCD and a cover for your Raspberry Pi, get a little keyboard that sits on the external, yep. and you can see what you're programming. Um, a lot of different things you can do. Uh, these are different projects that I've thought about. I've actually thought about. What have um, you? What have you? What have you used the Raspberry Pi for? Or you've just played with one, see what you could do. So I, I played with one. I've turned one into just a basic uh, Viata router. I've also turned it into a Pi-hole DNS server. Um, that's that's pretty cool because it does a lot of ad blocking for you. Um, ah, so the DNS server in your home network blocks exactly. ads because you use this little Raspberry Pi. Yep, yep. I've done that before. Um, uh, I actually have a camera that I bought off of Amazon and I connected it to my Raspberry Pi so I can try and turn it into a security camera, but it's too big. So I also invested in a Pi Zero. Actually, that was gifted to me at Christmas. Um, so I've got a Pi Zero that's wireless and I've uh, got the camera in there. And so I can take pictures, record video. I'm just trying to find a cheap solution where I can upload that video for long-term storage. Um, I've looked at a few options like Amazon Glacier is okay. Uh, there are some other options available, um, but that's kind of the stuff you do with Python uh, and mm -hmm. working with a Raspberry Pi. Um, you could also build your own home security system if you wanted to. Right, and hopefully it would be less or more secure than all the off-the-shelf Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm not an expert yet or at that level where I'm comfortable moving away from uh, one that's already built to something that i got to build myself. But there are templates out there that you can uh, use. You can leverage them, build your own, and customize it if you know some of these languages. Right, yeah. right. and Python's all about yeah. you can glue stuff together really easily. So yep. if, like yep. you said, you've got a camera and you want to be able to make it take pictures or video and upload it somewhere. 
Yeah, exactly. You write Python to glue that stuff together. There's a lot of things you can do with a little microcontroller like that. Yeah, right? yeah. We had a little um, uh, shout out to Mike Mike Nichols from the Useless Duck Company who works here. He's one of my colleagues, mm -hmm. and he had, he hosted a little robot building exercise thing over lunch, where people brought in a Raspberry Pi, little servo motors, and he had this 3D printed little laser turret. Yeah. So. We attached everything, glued it, and like put everything together. So we had this little Raspberry Pi drive a little laser pointer and move it in random directions, up, down, left, right. And the goal was to have a little thing that you could let run and it would entertain your cat for an hour. <laughs> and it was a fun little exercise to build a little automated thing that moves just powered by an Arduino. You know? And it's way more accessible than a lot of people think you can get a starter kit. We literally bought a starter kit that came with the servos that we needed, and you can go to Toronto Public Library and 3D print a template that you found on the internet, and that's it. You've got all your Lego bricks there, and you can just put it all together over an, over an hour or two. We did it over the lunch hour, it was an hour and a half. And you know, we produced this little thing that actually works. And it's so much easier than I think a lot of people think it is. Yeah, it, it actually is. I mean, it, it may seem intimidating at first, but, you know, a lot of people feel the same way, but then a lot of people have just, you know, kind of just jumped right into it. And, you know, the more and more they played with it, they start realizing that it's not as intimidating anymore. That's right. right? Just get started. Like, yeah. Don't let anything get in your way. Just try yeah. to do something. I mean, it's, it's, if you can use Google, that's it. I mean, then you're pretty much golden. <laughs> that's that's yeah. pretty much, I'm pretty sure that's how like 99% of programmers know how to program by Google and shit. <laughs> uh, hey, but you know what? That's the same in like the infrastructure world. 99% of the stuff is off of Google. Yeah. Uh, Which is why, you know, whiteboarding interviews, if you're in a programming interview and they make you do an assignment or a project on the whiteboard, that's nonsense. Nobody yeah. actually yeah. programs that way. Yeah. And, you know, I've been pro programming eight years, nine years, and I yeah. still go to Google quite often with a question of how do I do this little specific thing that I'm working on? Yeah, hey, you bring up an interesting point around like whiteboarding and stuff. So, you know, while you might be really good at, you know, some technology, some of the best skills that you could ever have is being able to work with a whiteboard, being able to present, and just speak yes. in front of people. Uh, I developed that skill over the last seven years, I'd say. Uh, it, it takes a lot um, to be able to stand up in front of people and then communicate with and them communicate. and convey a message. It's even harder when you have a tough audience, right? And they're all smart people. Um, what I found that was really good was that um, knowing your stuff really well helps. And then also when you go out to you know, do a presentation, prep beforehand. You know, review whatever material that you have beforehand before you're about to speak. Time yourself so you have a good idea. Um, I have a nature of, you know, knowing the general idea of my presentations, and then I wing it throughout the presentation because I know I'm not going to say exactly what I said the night before, but I will say something to that effect and then convey the message right. and convey the idea. Uh, but the more and more you do this, the more and more presenting you do, you start with a small group, then you, you know, expand, like small group being five to ten people, and that might be a boardroom, and you grow to like 20 people in a little classroom, and then it might be 50, then 100, then 200, then 500. And when you start presenting in these larger crowds, you develop that public speaking confidence, and that becomes highly valuable in your career, yeah. because it opens you up into a lot of different, uh, a whole bunch of career opportunities. Right? Yeah. 
I would, I would argue that the most important thing for being a software developer is communication. Yeah, communication and is key. I mean, being able to talk and, and convey a message correctly, something that concisely. is... Concisely. and something that is understandable and digestible is highly important. Yeah. So, you know, this is what I struggled with, you know, in the early part of my career, communication. Um, I knew technology and I could talk technology, but I can convey that to someone that didn't understand technology. And that's an interesting skill you have to pick up translation being able to translate to something that they can relate to that they can consume and understand Um, the whiteboarding part of it is is very important you know pick up a whiteboard and draw out how you think things are connected and how things work together and then start getting really good at being able to do whiteboard demonstrations because sometimes like using slideware or something off of a computer that you present on a, a projector or something to that effect isn't as effective as you being able to draw out what's in your head. But then, if you want to be able to draw out something that's in your head, you also have to be able to be a good, kind of semi-good artist, right? Yeah. You can't just draw a bunch of scribble and then expect someone to understand, yeah. which also means you got to develop some patience, right? That's right. And there's something about leading an audience through yeah. from the first thing you draw and then you add another thing and another thing and another thing. Yeah. It's much easier for an audience to follow that than it is if you just present a slide that has all 12 things already on the slide, it's overwhelming at first glance. Exactly, exactly. There really is a skill to that, so I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, in anyone's career, that level of presentation, communication is highly important and it's highly valuable in the industry. Has that, how has that shaped you in your career, building that skill or like figuring out that you needed that skill? So it's, it's helped me feel much more comfortable and felt that I now don't have any particular limits in attaining certain things. And what, what I mean by that is you become a little bit more forward in your ability to go achieve things. So for example, a lot of people struggle when they look at a job posting and, and they say, you know, the job posting says you need like eight years of experience, right. especially for people that have just come out of college. Like how, how the hell are you able to Right, it's intimidating. But for people that have like six years of experience, they automatically feel that they're eliminated so they won't apply, right? They won't apply for the role. Some people even with like eight years are a little uncertain, right? And that's a confidence level. That's because... They, ha- they lack confidence in their ability to be able to do something, be able to do that job. Being able to, the, the skills that I picked up, being able to communicate, being able to speak publicly or, or whiteboard or, or present, that helped me build overall confidence in that now I can face people, right? Mm, interesting. So what, what, what I mean by face people, it's not about conflict, it's more about being able to handle uh, positive reactions, neutral reactions and negative reactions. And negative reactions meaning also being rejected, your ideas being rejected, right? So someone listening to this podcast might not agree with everything that I've said today. And that's fair, right? Uh, But I feel that a lot of people will align with what I say because it's true about the industry. It's true. And if that's that's not what happens, if you get a lot of pushback and people are saying, no, you're, you're way off the mark, this is not how the industry works, you're going to be okay with that. Yeah, and I think that's the other thing too. You have to be okay with that because now you've gone against the grain and it's not so much people questioning you, they start questioning themselves because what they start believing or what they believed for the longest time actually has fallen apart because you've actually deconstructed their thinking. You've deconstructed 
their beliefs, right? So, and this is important. This is important in the tech industry, right? You have to deconstruct. You have to break things oh, down yeah. always to innovate further, right? So I, I have ideas that people might think are very far-fetched. So what? You know, it started with a crazy idea and people got All rich, of this right? started with a crazy idea. Right? We can go all the way back to the beginning of computing. Exactly. What do you mean you can have these big light bulb shaped Absolutely, things that man. It's, represent data? <laughs> man, it's, uh, it's mind blowing. Man, I was, I was uh, Sergio, let me tell you, I was so close minded when I first started off in my career. Um, coming to Dell and then going to VMware opened my eyes not only to the, just the industry, but just the social aspect of what you need to be able to do out here, right? To be able to succeed, do well, get paid well, you have to be able to step out, step out of that comfort mm-hmm. zone, right? You have to. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned being a jack of all trades versus focusing on, on one specific thing. Yeah. If you are the absolute best globally programmer in a specific language, yeah. and over time nobody uses that language, yeah. then you're out of something. But if you're a jack of all trades, you understand networking, security, software development, you understand the full stack of the front end, the back end, the database, yeah. the networking underneath it, all of that. You are going to find employment everywhere you go. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And you're going to refine each of those skills with a specific job. I'm going to learn a little bit more networking here. I'm going to learn a little bit more uh, Python development here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're always going to have opportunity. Yeah, you will. I mean, um, so I had a sales leader, a, a senior VP. Uh, we were at a, um, I guess, training event. And he came out and said something like, there are jack of all trades, and then uh, and it's and then there are you know specialists, or he liked to say you know jack of all trades and master of none. Right. He actually came out and said you know he expected everyone to be a jack of all trades and a master of one, right? Right. And I think uh, I I do agree with that uh, fundamentally because you still need to specialize in one particular area and be very strong in it, uh, but also have you know, breath into other areas as well because having awareness means you succeed in that one specialty that you have. Having more awareness knows that you're doing mm-hmm. something for other things, right? Not right. necessarily for you. If you have that skill, if I'm the best Python developer in the world, mm-hmm. I can produce the best code, so what? Exactly. I need to know how load balancers work in order to yeah. build the best system. Exactly. I need to know how networking works, how databases work. That's what's going to help me write the best Python. Because exactly. nothing works in isolation. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, it's funny, Valve, which is a, a very, it's probably got one of the better cultures of any company I've read. In their employee handbook, they talk about the kind of employee they want is an upside down T, where they have a lot of skills. If you imagine a graph and judging skills in different areas, you've got a lot of areas where you have some skill and you've got one area that you have a tremendous amount of skill in. That's that jack of all trades, master of one. Yeah, exactly. So um, I actually wanted to uh, suggest another guest that you might want to consider. Oh, sure. Uh, it would be more targeted at like businessy people. I don't know if you'd like that or right. if it's still tech, but not like so more business tech. So far, it hasn't been too much business. It's been a lot of tech and a lot of people's stories, like how they got into the industry, mm-hmm. which we talked about briefly, yeah. how you got started. I, yeah, I actually know a lot of people like that too, because you also, so the one particular individual can kind of give his history as well, because he started off in tech too and worked his way into management, mm. right? So there, that's a different perspective as well. That's Some right. people chase down that career path um, of management, while others uh, chase down the you know sole practitioner or 
you know, individual right, like architecture, yeah. architect and stuff. There are different paths that people can take, right, in in their careers. You're very different. Some people want to continue to work for people. Um, some people want, and and the reason why that is is because they just like being told what to do. Like, right? here's a set of tasks. I'll go do it. Or, or the certainty of it, right? Yeah. There's a lot of risk to going and starting your own thing versus well, yeah. you know, well, other steady risks. pay and benefits and things like that if right. you just get a job. Yeah, I mean, there's even in other like, lines of careers within IT, like even in, let's say, sales engineering or systems engineering. Systems engineering, you kind of have to know a little bit of the sales side as well as the tech side, but you're deep into tech. Right. You have to understand it because you're now proving, you're displacing the disbelief and you're making them believe. Right. Right. And that's, that was actually interesting because now you get com- competitive in nature. And competitive being you're not competing against someone else. You're competing against that disbelief that they have. Right. So, mm-hmm. for example, if I tell them that we can do X, Y, and Z, but they believe A, B, and C, how do I make them believe X, Y, and Z? How do I prove to them that that's my responsibility because I'm competing against what they already know? Right? Right. And I have to change their mindset. I have to grow their mindset and help them think outside of what they know and make them feel comfortable. And it's actually really cool um, to be able to be in that kind of role, which I think that a lot of people probably can do. It just takes a social element right. aspect of it. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, more, it's not straight tech. This is more salesy and more social, like understanding it's, people. Understanding. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's entirely salesy. Like, okay, there are spectrums. You can have the completely yeah. salesy systems engineer or sales engineer, or you can have the highly technical sales engineer or systems engineer, right? Uh, and then you can ha- kind of have the person in between and closer to each end of the spectrum. Um, but if, if you fit in any end of that spectrum, you'll be fine, right? Mm, you'll just, find, yeah, there's jobs for you no matter Oh, yeah, there are plenty of jobs, right? Mm-hmm. It's just highly likely that if you're in the, the, the highly technical end of that spectrum, you would have came from a help desk or a sysadmin or a consulting background. Um, but if you're more on the salesy side, you probably would have came from a sales, uh, sales exec That's role right. or maybe even like a business type role. Uh, or maybe you might have a bit of a tech background and you're just trying to get into it. It really depends. So I want to stay relevant to most of the audience, right? Yeah. And most of the audience is not looking for that kind of role. Yeah. Uh, but most what of the audience they? does care about like what's the bigger picture, mm-hmm. right? You've got, you know, let's say there's 100 tech companies you could work for in Toronto. They're all different. Some of them are dev shops, some of them are consultants like you yeah. who deal with something more specific. Um, so like that more broad stroke stuff, but individual job titles and roles, less so. Yeah, so one of the things I'll say though, job titles are starting to become less and less relevant. I think they're more of a, an ego booster more than anything. Um, you can be yes. you can be whatever you want and you do, you do the job you feel you need to do for that role that you're, you think you're in, right? Or the role that you fit. So like I say that because uh, you have a set of duties that you obviously are assigned or a set of expectations that you need to meet. But realistically, there are ways you can achieve that in a very minimal, minimalistic amount of time and then focus your efforts elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of tech companies are supposed to be encouraging, that kind of culture, that growth culture. So I think Google does it. They give you like a block of hours every week or month or something. It's every week, apparently. Yeah. Or they give you Where like... Where you can work on whatever you want to work exactly. on. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's... That is kind of a highly encouraging, two-way, mutually beneficial um, program because 
when you give the employee the opportunity and the rope to do whatever they want, that makes them one feel responsible for themselves, meaning I, ha like, I have all this power. But then with that same power, mm -hmm. you have to be highly responsible and accountable for everything that you do. So, right. And yeah. what are the things, in my perspective, what are the things that the employee is most likely to take on if they've got 5% of their free time to work on anything? Well, I'm probably going to try to solve whatever reoccurring problem is the most annoying or painful of my normal job. So before you know it, if you've allocated a little bit of time, after two or three months, that employee is way more effective than they were. But in their normal rush of, in my normal rush of day-to-day -day activity that I need to do, I don't have time to spend three hours to automate that job that only takes me 10, 10 minutes right now. Yep. Because I've got, I, don't, I only have 10 minutes to do the job right now. But you know, in, a, in a month, if I've fully automated that, I have 10 minutes of work that happens instantly that I don't have to do anything for. And I think that's a, you know, most annoying tasks that I take on are probably more than 10 minutes. They're probably more like half an hour. But the automation is, you know, four hours, I don't have time right now. So those kinds of things pay massive dividends in the long run. Oh, yeah, But absolutely. if I'm just trying to survive every day because there's so much work coming in and I don't have that extra rope that you're talking about, it's really a, a detriment to the business in the long run. But it's, at the same time, it's hard. As a manager, how do you know where it's okay to invest time because you're going to repeat that, you're going to be able to automate it, and it's going to be valuable to automate it, versus this is just something we're, we're going to be doing temporarily because yeah. some out external pressure is going to cause my job to change. You know, being able to predict the future, I think, is what it boils down to. So I think um, just people, human nature, most people generally feel bad when they don't do their work or when they're actually not providing an output. Right. And so when you, when you are given an immense amount of rope to go do whatever the hell you want, but you ensure that your job gets done, there are people out there that will just get their job done and then take the rest of the time to go golfing or whatever the hell right. else, right? That's also acceptable, by the way. Where I think that it becomes even more acceptable is when you're using that same time to also think about your future projects or whatever else. So I might be golfing or I might be playing video games. I don't play video games that often, but I might be doing something else unrelated. Mm -hmm. But when maybe you're thinking about where you're going, exactly, what you right, want to do. Right. Right. So that is still a contribution to your overall work ethic and your work effort. I think people get so bogged down by the idea of I need to work 40 hours a week. Right. That it's, it's, yeah. It really, I almost want to use the word toxic. It's not yeah. a good word, but because really it's we're talking about yeah. tech. Yeah. This is not something where I need to carry 60, you know, 600 bricks over there and build a wall with them. Yeah. This is about designing a system that can be reproduced indefinitely for free. Mm -hmm. In tech, the design is so important. Mm -hmm. And I've really found if I design a system very well, it often I spend half or three quarters of the time in design and the implementation is very fast. And if I've done a good job in, in design, I'm flexible for whatever future requirements come up. But if I do the opposite and I rush into writing code, then a month from now when I'm working on the same system and new requirements, my boss says, hey, we needed to do this and we needed to do this. If I haven't built my system well, I haven't designed my system well, that becomes way more expensive. Mm -hmm. So something that's supposed to, it sounds like it should only take a week, takes five weeks because the system, so many things have to change before I'm ready to build that feature in. And that is very hard to measure and design for, but it pays dividends. Which is why the more I've been in the industry, the more I've developed patterns like, I really need to tell the world to be quiet and spend two hours on a whiteboard designing this. And then I need to 
have a back and forth with my smartest colleague about it. Yeah. My, my, by smartest, I just mean the one who's most familiar with what I'm working with. Yeah, exactly. And if I can get that done, it's more valuable that I spend a whole day doing that and then the next day implementing it than if I just design and implement it all in one day and then I have to pay for and live with those costs, those decisions later on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that is also the element of time management as well, right? I, uh, I'm not the best at time management, uh, but I kind of do my work a little bit differently. Um, you know, um, what, so what it is, is it's all about the autonomy, right? I think um, the less and less managers are engaged in what a certain individual is doing on a day-to-day or even hourly basis, um, the, more, the more output you're going to get out of them, right? I've had managers and directors that have micromanaged the shit out of me. And guess what? You know, you create an unhealthy environment where I don't want to work for you anymore because you're constantly asking me where this is, right? But then where is your business justification to ask me why that, you know, why it's not available at this time? Because, you know, to me, I've deprioritized it in favor of a number of other things and maybe you don't have awareness into the other things that I'm doing. So, you know, it, it's, bog- it's just bothered me significantly. Um, well, so it sounds now, like it's bothered you because your productivity is ultimately lower. Yeah, your productivity declines, but then when you have the autonomy to do whatever, that sense of responsibility drives your productivity higher, right? Yeah. I, do you think that's everyone, or do you, think, do you think by and large that is effective, or do you think most people need to be coerced and managers do need to micromanage? I think some people, I think... A good number of people need to be coerced uh, and micromanaged, not because they're terrible people or they're bad at what they do. It's just that they don't have the same level of sense of direction or self-initiative. Uh, and that's not, it's not their fault. It's just how they have been, how they've grown up, uh, what they've been forced to do growing up. Some people have to fight harder than others, you know, through their childhood, right? And, and it speaks to how they become as as uh, adults. Mm. So you mean some, if, if you struggle more when you're younger, you kind of have that mechanism built into your brain that you, you will put in energy, you will strive. Yeah, you, you, you'll strive for the best and you also look to some of your, your role models too to see how they succeed, right? Um, so I've got a couple yeah. of uncles that live in New Zealand and um, they, like, they are highly successful. My stepdad is highly successful. He, um, they all like, run their own business. Uh, but they've, you know, they've got a, a few things in common. You know, persistence, drive, and you know, the optimism. They're optimistic. Yeah, they're always optimistic about it, right? You know, things will always go bad. I mean, they also things always have a possibility of yeah, going bad. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's always going to be the likelihood of something going wrong in a particular deal, right? But you're going to get through that, and it's how you build out your your overall strategy to recover from that, right? So you look at, like, let's say, stock prices, for example, and when you look at them on an hourly basis, they'll like, drop significantly or go up significantly. But if you, start micro, like, if you start looking at it with a microscope, that's where the anxiety starts building up. But when you look right. at it at a you know, yearly, every five years, ten years, that's like it was nothing, right? Because right. longer term, you see a massive gain, right? Right. This segues nicely into an area that I know you're very interested in, which is uh, stocks and investments and, and following that market. Right. What's right. been your exposure? And I'm actually very interested in how you got into that. Where did you start? Uh, so, 
you know, investing, just investing in general has always been kind of something I've been wanting to do and, and I've been able to do. Like my mom, from the start of, like, when I was able to make money, she was like, you know, just save something. Save a little bit, right? Because it'll do something for you. So by saving, I was able to buy my first house when I was 23. Um, wow. Yeah, and you think about that uh, for a second. There are not a lot of people that are able to do that. But it's because of how they believe what they need to do with their money, right? I believe I needed to save it so that I can invest in it, right? Now the investment was the house. Now that took me further because it you know, creates additional value for you and that's long-term value. You know, for me, um, I'm slightly impatient, but at the same time, I'm also patient. And so, like holding on to a house for a few years as an investment and then flipping it, yeah, you can make some good money. And then you take that money and then you find other ways to invest it, right? And you think that going back into real estate might be a good idea, but realistically, it might not be. And that's because of the current trends in the market, right? House prices and condos and whatever else are still pretty pricey. Uh, so it's not, I mean, unless you have boatloads of money and in the millions, you can't simply just buy properties, right? right. And you know, the mortgage rules are, are a lot more strict uh, they won't let you simply borrow any amount just like that without going some, through some level of validation and credit checks and, you know, financial background checks and whatnot. Right. So, you know, that led me to kind of go into stocks because I saw opportunities um, to kind of see, like, one, short-term gain and then two, long-term gain. So, you know, you could, you could throw your money into a savings account and maybe see, like, 1% or 2% interest. And then you also have your access to your TFSA where you can, you know, defer your taxes. Like, as long right. as you're within those limits, right? So, a lot of people can just put money into a TFSA and watch it grow. TFSA is a tax-free savings account, by the way. Yeah. Um, Seeing a TFSA in a savings account, that's just a slow interest rate. Now, you can open an account where you can do trading with it, stock trading. That's now, right. In a TFSA, though, you have to be careful because you do not want the... You don't want the CRA coming in and seeing that you've done like, you know, five trades a month throughout the year within your TFSA and it's grown from like 50000 to a million dollars because then they're going to have a lot of problems with you. Well, if you can pull that off, hats well, off to you. Well, like pay the, the taxes that you need the, to pay. The interesting thing is people have pulled that off and, you know, TFSAs that have started off with like 40k, 50k. Uh, have grown to like millions of dollars. Who right? are these investors? I want to talk to them. It's, I want know, that account. You know, it's <laughs> okay, and that's the thing, right? It's it's the strategy of investing. So some people um, do day trading, and if you're day trading within a TFSA, um, back then they probably didn't care, and they probably weren't really looking into it as much, because right. not many people's accounts were growing substantially, right? Right. So let's say you invest in Bitcoin when it was like fifty dollars, and then you put fifty dollars and you bought like I don't know, a thousand shares in your TFSA of fifty dollars of Bitcoin, and when did it? What did it go up to? Uh, it went up to like nine thousand. It peaked 000? in the many thousands. Yeah, I think nine, nine thousands. So it peaked. No, I think thirteen thousand. But let's just say it peaked at like five thousand. Yeah. So it grew a hundred times. Yeah. Right. Your fifty thousand, if it grew a hundred times, is now five million. Oh, you're right. So that's what you know. People have have lucked out. And they've, you know, made a shit ton of money. And the, the fun part about it is you can now essentially reinvest whatever you want because all of that that you gained is non-taxable. That's right. right. 
right? That's right, and it's in it's still in that umbrella tax-free yeah. savings account if you want it to be. And you can pull out, you can, you know, people have done interesting things. They've dropped um, money into um, uh, ETFs, which pay out dividends, right? Uh, Exchange-traded funds. So when you pay out a dividend, you're basically making money off of the money that you've invested. Right. Um, and then some of them also do a dividend reinvestment. So the money that you make will, will we'll buy, buy additional that. ETFs. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, some people are doing that. Some people use that as income for themselves. This is how people got rich. That's the right? dream. Yeah. That would do you be- know what you do? So you talk a lot about it, this investment and, and, you know, how, how to make your money grow. Yeah. Do you have a plan for, you know, let's say you, you have a number that's 20, 20 million dollars. If you hit 20 million dollars, you can retire. That's you've, you've crunched the numbers. You know that that's your retirement goal. Yeah. If you hit that in your thirties, do you know what you would do? You still got at least 30, 40 years of life left. Yeah, and so that's where you kind of have to be additionally smart, right? I mean, if you made that kind of money, a lot of people will like all immediately go nuts and go crazy, and then they might just go on a binge of spending or something, right? Um, but it also takes that kind of nature. What kind of person are you? Uh, I am not, uh, I, I personally am not like going to go out of my way to go buy a nice Ferrari or something. If I did make that kind of money, I'd buy myself a nicer car. I'm not yeah. gonna lie. Like well, I'm saying, what if you reached retirement age money? You know that this is the money you no, live off yeah, for the rest of yeah. your life. So it's not so, luxury money, right? It's well, that's well, the thing. You what think I'm asking is, I think, would you leave your job? Would you stop working? Would you change your lifestyle? So that's you bring up an interesting point. So let's say we're working with a figure of twenty million dollars, right? Twenty million dollars can last you your life and then some. It's how you use that money, right? So it's also how you live. And if you have a certain lifestyle, do you want that lifestyle to be more luxurious or are you going to maintain that I'm lifestyle? I'm asking about you, Marino. Yeah, yeah, no, no. And, and this is what I'm leading into, right? Um, it gives you a lot of options in what you can do. Now, for me specifically, um, I would like to start multiple different businesses, right? Uh, one can be in tech, one can be in a different industry, another can be focused on uh, something I'm passionate about. And then um, maybe I could quit my job or not, right? Um, what I could do is I could continue to work my job but not have to care as much, mm-hmm. right? At the same time, I don't want to leave that kind of impression with the employer. So um, I'd have to make that determination. And, I, and it would be more than likely an emotional decision because you have so much money um, and you, even with half of it, you can live indefinitely and never have to work for the rest of your life. That also means that you can do the things that you were never able to do when you were younger, right? You can go travel more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, your kids getting, um, I don't have kids yet, but your kids going to school or anything like that. You can buy multiple properties. You can vacation anywhere you want. Your wife doesn't have to work. Right? Yeah, you've got a lot of possibilities. Exactly. Is that what you would do? That's probably what I would do. I mean, I, I you know, so having been in the industry for, what, 14 years now? Yeah, because I started when I was 16. Uh, I started playing with technology when I was a lot younger, but 16, right? Having been in this industry a while, um, there has to be something more exciting, right? So cloud mm-hmm. technology is, is very exciting. And not, I don't know I'm talking about regular infrastructure cloud technology. It's cloud services. And I would focus my, my, just my learning and efforts to you know, developing my skill set in that area so that I can take that knowledge and then do something else with it, right? 
So take mm. that knowledge to essentially solve another problem. It could be in the medical field. It could be, you know, our traffic problems. Right, the right? gridlock. Yeah, traffic. gridlock. It could be, you know, a system that manages uh, low-income housing or something. It doesn't matter, right? As long as it helps in some way. Uh, and that leads into the idea of philanthropy. Being a yeah. philanthropist and being able to share ideas that betters the world and donating your time is what I ultimately would want to do, right? Even, even with money and therefore time to do whatever you want, whatever you want wouldn't be sitting with a margarita on a beach the whole time. No. It would be putting your skills and still doing something, still building something. Exactly. Yeah. I, I'm of a nature that I always need to get better. I need, I need to be better than last year somehow. Yeah. Um, whether it's by you know, 10%, 1%, doesn't matter. I still have to be better, right? And I think if everyone kind of took on that mentality, even if it was 1% better, that's still better than what you were last year and better than what you were 10 years ago. That's, yeah. That's, how that's I a pattern it. I'm really seeing with people, yeah. um, especially people who are driven. Like, yeah. it sound, like I know you are, and like other people that I've had on the podcast, yeah. is they're always trying to improve themselves. And this is something I didn't get when I was young. I didn't understand when I was in, in school, when I was in junior school, high school, uh, post-secondary, that people... And myself, I discovered I really have a drive to improve myself. I had no idea that was in me when I was younger. I thought, I'm just going to get through school and then I'm good. I'm just going to get a job and then I'm happy. I'm just going to get a house and then I'm happy. There really isn't an end for myself, I've discovered. It sounds like even with the money and the house and, the, and a family, you wouldn't stop. No, it's, it's never. And the, the challenge is you don't even know what you're chasing at this point, right? That's so right. So you... you um, the best way to think about it is, is establish goals for five years down the road and then 10 years, right? So a goal might be, I want to be mortgage-free in five years, which if you, if you play your cards right and just kind of strategize appropriately, it's entirely possible, right? But that also means you have to make changes in your life and you have to assess what you need to change to be able to achieve that state five years from now. Right. But you cannot, you, there's a lot of things you cannot control, like how the markets do, you can't see, you know, if you're going to be alive even five years from now. Um, but you also want to think, like, what do I want to be able to do five years from now, right? right. What kind of flexibility do I want? Um, because I think the most powerful, flex, uh, powerful level of flexibility you can have is being able to say no. Mm. So, What do you mean? So a lot of people say yes because they have to, they fear, right? I mean, if I don't say yes to this, maybe I might not ever get another chance. The fear of missing out, right? Right. You have to also be able to say no to get a little ahead in life and also live comfortably, right? Sometimes you have to say no to people, say no to hanging out, say no to I can't come to this meeting, say no to I'm sorry, I'm not going to support this project. Don't even apologize. I'm not going to support this project. These are the kinds of things that if you start being able to do, you actually relieve yourself of a level of anxiety which allows you to perform a lot better overall more efficiently, right? But then at the same time, the, the way you say no in that regard when you're at that stage in life where you, you don't have to worry, it's, a, it's the lack of worry, right? If someone right, tells those you... things are off your mind now. Yeah, you can focus yeah. on the things that you want to focus on, yeah. that you are focused exactly. on. Exactly. If someone comes up to you and says, this is the best job you're ever going to have, do you want it? You can say no. You're not dependent on that job to live life. A lot of people have to work to be able to live, right? Some people want to be able to live so that they can you know, work and enjoy it, but that becomes a passion for them. And I think people want to get to that state, not in the negative sense. They want to be able to get to a state where they enjoy what they do. But a lot of people 
they get to the age of like 70 before they even get to enjoy that, right? And then they're tired and they can't yeah. get to enjoy it as much, right? Yeah, so that's, I feel you. And that's how I feel. So I'd, I think I'd continually work, just not for someone. Uh, Something that you're more passionate about. Yeah, you're not work for working a for a paycheck. Yeah, yeah. I work for a cause, right? If I get money, that's a byproduct of it, a good byproduct. If I don't, that's okay. If I'm losing money, then we have to assess what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> If it's yeah. temporary, all right. Yeah. Something that I've heard say that concisely is the secret to life is find, figuring out what you love doing and then find somebody crazy enough to pay you to do it. That, exactly, yeah. Uh, I can say that if you allow yourself to step outside of that comfort zone, you can find that role where someone will allow you and pay you crazy amounts of money to do whatever the, essentially whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say it. Yeah. Uh, and that's not to say that, you know, you're, you can go rogue and do whatever you want. That means you have built a severe amount of trust in whoever manages you, and they trust that what you're doing is not only for the betterment, betterment of that team, of the tasks that you do, but for the overall organization. Right. And it's consistent. You know, yeah. if someone's, someone's going to trust you and pay you to do something that you yeah. love doing, it's got to be consistent. There's got to be a market. So you can't be ignorant to... The way that the world is built, right? There are absolutely you can't. Yeah. No, you 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 need to be a little bit more open-minded. I mean, I, I say that, and it and it sounds easy, but it's not. It's not easy to be open-minded, right? But once you start mm -hmm. being exposed to areas, and you allow yourself to be exposed to areas that you've never, you know, seen or been into, then you start being a lot more open-minded. Um, how have you How have you become more open-minded, and what what experiences caused you to be a more open-minded? Uh, Problems that you can't solve with what you know is what allows you to be open-minded, right? If you give up, I, I, I can't figure it out, I'm walking away, that disallows you the opportunity to grow your mindset and then mm. open your mind a little bit more. So I personally don't like to give up. I'll, I'll struggle at something and it might take me a little bit longer, but I'll find a way to get through it eventually or maybe instantaneously or I'll look for help or I'll get the help I need. Right. Right? But it's a matter of keeping an open mind, which means you also have to displace your ego. Right? Mm, right. Because a lot of people... It's your ego that's saying, don't do that, you can't do it. Exactly. Right? Stick to what you know. Yeah. So if you can kind of bypass that a little bit, um, have an open mind by engaging someone else for their ideas and allow them to give you a different perspective, you're able to solve that problem. Right? For the longest time, I thought the only way you can do things was hopping on the CLI of some box. But no, there are so many different ways to do things, right? It's interesting that you said that, that open-mindedness comes from first a realization that I can't do something or I don't have a skill that other people have. And then sometimes the pursuit of that thing that you don't understand, that thing that you, don't, you can't do yet, really takes something way outside your comfort zone that you had no idea that's what it took. Yeah. Like sometimes the thing that is keeping you from being an excellent public speaker is being okay with yourself, being okay with your own silence, your own thoughts. Yeah, the, ultimately what it means is you are your own barrier. Everyone mm. is their own barrier. No one else is standing in your way but yourself. Uh, and that, that might be something harsh to say, but that is the reality. Yeah. You gate yourself and you I, have to ungate yourself. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And it's something that I didn't realize until about a year ago for myself. Yeah. That there's things that I've said, oh, I would like to be that kind of person. I would like to do that kind of thing. 
And when I really got down to it, what's in my way, it was only me. And it was often some misinterpretation or, or just blocker that I put into place that I couldn't even see. Mm-hmm. You know, a decision that I made a long time ago to say, no, I'm not a very social person and that's why I'm not good at public speaking and that's why I'm afraid of public speaking, for example. Right, right. But it's, it's limiting. Mm-hmm. It caused me to be afraid of public speaking or afraid of, I'm going to piss off my boss if I go around my boss to talk to somebody on another team. But sometimes that's what I need to do to pursue building this best app or product or designing the best system that I can. And oftentimes I was surprised that my boss was like, you did a... F- great job. That was exactly what you should have done. You went through the red tape, you got it done, and now we're shipping much faster than we expected to. Yeah, there's, a, there's actually a fundamental principle. Um, sometimes you think about um, you know, what you're told that you need to do, and you might not agree with that because it may not be efficient, right? And so when you disagree, you have to be able to back up with results. Like, this is going to be better if we do it this way, because if you don't back it up, then it's not concrete. There's no right. proof. Then you're work, just right? talking. But ultimately, I think that a lot of people have the ability to disagree. They're just afraid to because there's some level of fear based off of that authoritarian kind of mindset. Like, I'm your manager. you got to do what I say. So you, how do people kind of break out of that mindset? That opens right. up like a whole different area of... Yeah, if you can challenge somebody... And oftentimes, you know, it doesn't have to be a public thing. You could take them yeah. uh, when it's just the two of you and say, hey, you, you explain things this way. I have a different idea. Well, let's, let's work through it on a whiteboard. And if they're reasonable and if you're reasonable, you can, they can come to understand your perception. And then together you guys can make a decision. Yes, it's better for some reason, for this reason, or no, it's not for this reason. Mm-hmm. And it's valuable. Like the best, no one, no one builds the best anything in isolation. It always requires being iterative and collaborating with other people. Yeah, none of these skills are ever going to be built overnight. It takes time. You build one, you build the next. You just get yeah. good at trying to use them together, and then you use multiple together over time. I mean, but it is that combination of skills yeah. that really makes you that really makes you valuable. Exactly. Exactly. Good. I love that we talked about this. There's... Yeah, yeah. And you said something about the uh, the past. You know, looking back at your nine year old self. Um, I think that fundamentally we always need to look back at our mistakes and know what we learned from them. That's important. Um, But we also need to keep in mind the future and what could be, and we need to be slightly prepared for what could change, right? Uh, And if you continually take on that approach in your career, you'll grow substantially. Um, Because if you're always on the lookout for new things and you've learned from the mistakes that you made in the past, you're going to stay ahead. Um, something new will come along. And I, I know I have to know a little bit about it, but by knowing a little bit about it, you have more curiosity to know more about it, right? And that's how I, mm. I think. It's interesting you use the word curiosity. Yeah. Because I see that as a fundamental in a lot of people. Yeah. And I see that in you. you. You're a very curious person in that you've, you've yeah. moved roles because you're like, okay, I understand what I'm doing now. What's this next thing over here? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's essentially it. I mean, the curiosity will essentially drive you to new things, but it also essentially drives you to step out of your comfort zone. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you'd like to cover or anything you'd like to leave people with? Um, well, just, just to go on a little bit more about investing, just want to expand on that a little bit if you don't mind. 
Um, you know, for those that are considering investing, a lot of people might jump on some forums like Reddit, for example, and read that someone's saying, you know, the stock's going to do so well, you better invest in it. You know, when people say that, uh, you, you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt, right? Because the internet is highly anonymous, not completely anonymous, but it's still anonymous. You don't know who the other person right. is. You and don't have any trust for them, and you don't know their motive. Yeah, you don't know their motive. And so I've seen people essentially pump stocks on a forum and say, yeah, this stock's going to do well. It's going to you know, pop in the next few days after earnings. And then you know, it starts driving the stock price up because people are you know, continually investing in that stock. And then guess what? Earnings release. They miss their targets. They miss their earnings. And then there's a massive sell-off. But what happens is the people that bought at the tail end, right before earnings, like mm-hmm. right, up in, right up until it, they bought at the highest price. And there are people that have like sell orders. Like, okay, sell, and they've made their profit. The other people are like, oh shit, I've just lost a whole bunch of money. And where it becomes even more worse is where people start seeing the stock price drop and they sell. Right. So, you know, one thing I would say is don't sell your stock once you see it drop like, you know, 5%. You know, pay attention to the long-term one-year, three-year, five-year outlook of what happened in the last, in those last five years or whatever, because that'll kind of give you a telltale sign of how the stock is doing. There's one, like, there's one stock. It's the Capri stock or something, uh, and it's like a a real estate investment trust. When you look at its 10-year outlook, it's performed well. It's grown substantially. If it's also paying out a dividend of like 2%, right? Let's just say it's paying out 2%. Let's say. Mm-hmm. And it's been growing on a year-over-year basis. Why wouldn't you invest in that stock? Especially if you're not trying to just make money off of the, that flip, well, right? You never know, right? right. Past performance does, is not an indicator of future success. Well, so what, there are a lot of d- good ways to kind of assess that. So one, one commonality between a lot of stocks um, is that they all got hit in 2008 when the recession That's hit. That's right. However, there are other stocks that while that you know, recession hit, didn't bother them. They kept going and chugging away. So when you look at that and you start looking into the fundamentals of those companies, you start to realize that they built resiliency into their overall plan. You know, what, what that resiliency means is, okay, the business is resilient. I come from a tech background. What have they done... What have they done for their business to make it in such a way, to continue to perform in such a way, right? Mm-hmm. And this is how companies are now starting to be developed, right? Give me the most efficient tech I need to get me going so that I can start producing revenue. I don't want to invest a substantial amount. And so, more and more you don't need to. Yeah, exactly. Now anyways, going back to it, right? You look at it and you can invest in a number of ways. You can start a, a position and buy a bunch of stock uh, you can go hard all in, or you can kind of phase your way in, or you wait for a dip in that stock if you've been paying attention, right? and you want to buy in a dip, because that short-term dip doesn't mean that the stock is going to zero. That's right. what a lot of people think. People Right, which is chaos. If it's a steady company that's yeah. producing revenue that has a proper business yeah. model, a dip in the market doesn't mean it's going to go down. So I'll, I'll give you an example of a stock, right? Um, so there's one called CanTrust, and um, it was... Basically, the stock price was going all the way up to uh, right up until earnings. Well, basically, they they made their earnings target, so they essentially had like decent revenue. They didn't demonstrate growth, 
But because they didn't demonstrate growth, right, people started freaking out. They're like, oh shit, and the company's like not going to do well. How are they going to sustain this? Blah, blah, blah. You know, as the company grows and their, their revenue stays the same, what's going to happen? Right. But that's, that's the that's short term. one quarter. Yeah, that's like the single quarter there. What about all the stuff that they prepped for their future quarters, right? Right. And so people start immediately seeing, uh, you know, a drop and then they freak out because they think their money is going to disappear and then they start dr- selling. And then other people start saying shit like, the stock price is going to zero. It's going to go bankrupt. This company is losing money. And then more people start exiting, right? But then you have to use that as an opportunity and, and buy, right? Right. And, you know, this is... The point a, of greatest opportunity is at that low dip. Yeah. People want to buy low and sell high, not buy high and sell low, right? But people end up doing that. Oh, if yeah, you, absolutely. If you act on emotion, you're going to buy high when it seems like things are good, and you're going to sell low when it seems like you yeah. might be at so, greatest so risk. The, yeah. The biggest mistake is selling low. The, high, the, the second yeah. worst mistake you can make is buying high. Now, I make the mistake of buying high, but then if you fundamentally believe and hold long term, you're not going to lose money, right? That's right. So, as long as the company has a yeah. reasonable outlook. Most companies want to stay alive. Yeah. They want to survive. Yeah. So just some last investing yeah. like things. If anyone you know, wants to consider investing, do some research. Go on Google. Look at Investopedia. A lot of great information in stocks. Um, look at ETFs, ones that pay dividends and has, has stellar growth or even has been consistent for the last little while. You'll see that your money grows long term. And that's all that matters, especially if you're not day trading. You have a day job. Right. Why do you need to day trade unless you're right. trying to get We're investing rich. for retirement. We're yeah. not investing for next exactly. week. Time in the market beats timing the market. Ah, good words. Marino, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. If people want to get a hold of you, is LinkedIn the best way or do you have a... Yeah, so uh, you guys can find me on LinkedIn. Um, just look up Marino Widjay. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter. Uh, you can look me up at virtualized6. Uh, the S is not there. It's actually the number six. Um, <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Sergio. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. I, uh, I hope I can do a few more of these over the next little while. Thank you. Thank you, Marino, for being on the podcast. Also, thank you, Liam Kinnan, for helping out with the audio of this episode. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Today's closing features music from a local Toronto band. This is Lights Are Out by Side Hustle. <laughs>